circle, yes, we rotate 360 degrees, high, high, 360 degrees, high, high, 306, 306, 360 degrees, high, high, All right, miyuyam, miyuyam, chon onam, and namokyam to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine, produced by members and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program, broadcasting from right here at KPFA in Huchin, occupied Ohlone territory, also known to settlers as Berkeley, California. This week on Full Circle, we continue to keep our eyes and ears on Palestine, and on tonight's show, we'll hear from Dr. Jess Ganim, a Palestinian-American doctor that spent 25 years working in Gaza. We'll also hear from Professor Hatam Bazian of UC Berkeley. They both spoke at the West Coast March on Washington. And then later, we'll close out the show with J.R. Bowray and Block Report Radio. He spoke with Alameda County District Attorney Pamela Price. All that tonight on Full Circle. I'm your host tonight, Freewill and Franklin, coming to you from downtown Antioch. This is occupied Bay Miwok territory. Keep it locked right here to KPFA. Yes, again, Miu Yum, Miu Yum, and Notion Lovic for joining us tonight on Full Circle. And before I get started with the show, I want to say a few words about a local activist that uh, recently transitioned to the spirit world. And on January 18th, Aaron Ahrens, whose legal name, Roger Ahrens, died in Berkeley after a battle with pancreatic cancer. Aaron was a well-known fixture of the San Francisco Bay Area left. He was a lifelong radical activist since his teens in New York City, and then after he immigrated, as he joked, to the San Francisco Bay Area in the 1970s, he became a devoted listener, albeit critical, and supporter of KPFA radio. Um, He was active in a variety of arenas, probably most notable on anti-police misconduct and anti-war, anti-imperialism. He was always way to the left of the Democratic Party, always voting either in the Peace and Freedom Party and the Green Party candidates. Uh, He had many talents, most notably with computer technology, and that was years before it became standard among activists. And whether one called him by his legal name, Roger, or just Aaron, he will be missed. He was 83 years old. And thank you, Stan Woods, for sending that in. I appreciate that. Also, um, to move into a reminder, if you haven't filled out the KPFA fall survey, please do so. And if you are a fan or a follower of Full Circle or First Voice Media, please go ahead and tell them that. And you'll find that survey on the KPFA website at the top of the page. That's kpfa.org. If for some reason it's not there, just search listener survey. And moving on tonight, 
you will hear sounds from some recent actions around the Bay Area, uh, the shutdown of the Port of Oakland and the West Coast March on Washington um, were two recent ones that I was able to attend. Um, just a quick reminder that uh, I posted uh, many videos and things that I won't be able to play on the air on the First Voice Media Facebook page, and that's First Voice Media on Facebook. Head over to that page and give us a like and a follow and check out the videos that we have posted there. And uh, real quick for a great update on the decision of the International Court of Justice that was just released early this morning, check out today's episode of Democracy Now! for an in-depth report and analysis on that decision. Now let's kick off the show from the stage of the West Coast March on Washington. An estimated 30,000 people attended the march and rally at San Francisco's Civic Center. This is Berkeley professor Hatem Bazian. Followed by that, we'll hear from Dr. Jess Ganim, a Palestinian-American doctor that spent 25 years working in Gaza. I'm going to need y'all to make a lot of noise for our next speaker, Dr. Hatem Bazian. So, salamu alaikum first. Now, I always start my speech by giving our deep recognition to our indigenous communities. We are standing on stolen land, on colonized land. So, as Palestinian, we can't begin speaking without actually getting the recognition that we are on a stolen land and we're still waiting for a decolonized land today. Second, we are always standing on the shoulders of our black brothers and sisters. And they were brought to this country in the holes of ships, but they continue to inspire and define the moral ethical trajectory of this country. And we're celebrating Martin Luther King tomorrow, but as you begin to remember Martin Luther King's speech, I have a dream. I want you to wake up and listen to his speech, The Three Evils of Society. Materialism, racism, and militarism. So tomorrow, that's what we're gonna do. So from Stephen Biko's Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu's land of Soweto, Cape Town, and Johannesburg, to Khan Yunis, to Jabalia, to Gaza City, through the Salah al-Din corridor, or Rafah crossing, we are telling the Zionists, we're telling the United States, we're telling Western Europe, we are coming back to Palestine, whether you like it or not. We are not shocked. We are not disappointed from the utter hypocrisy exhibited by Western powers. Again, let me repeat, we are not shocked or disappointed from the utter hypocrisy exhibited by Western powers. For they have not only been on the wrong side of history, they collectively birthed wrong history. 
They birthed wrong history of enslavement. They birthed the wrong history of colonization. They birthed the wrong history of manifest destiny. They birthed racial hierarchy. They birthed militarism. They birthed the whole genocidal campaign, World War I, World War II. And let me remind Genocide Joe, anti-Semitism was born in Europe, not in the Muslim world. As they begin their colonial support, they continue into post-colonialism. Israel's, Israel's Zionist genocide in Palestine was set in motion by Western powers and continues with their military, economic, political, and mainstream, yeah, mainstream media support. We need to say that there is complicity in genocide. We thank South Africa for actually taking the case of genocide to the world court. But let me tell you, South Africa also have alerted the United States that they're filing a case of the United States being complicit in genocide. Netanyahu and Genocide Joe are on the wrong side of history and are partners in, in the Gaza's genocide. Now look in here, Germany, do I say some more, Germany? Germany is actually engaging and is gonna support Israel in its case in genocide in The Hague. Now unfortunately, we have studied and learned history. Germany had genocide in Namibia. And before they had the Holocaust, they practiced, perfected, tested, massacred, genocide the people of Namibia. They think, they think, and I'm giving them credit that they do, they think that they could atone for the Holocaust by joining the genocide of the Palestinians. No, no, Germany, you cannot cleanse your history by joining another genocide. Now we have to understand the moment we are in. We have two worlds in front of our eyes today. The world of the colonizer and the world of the colonized. The world of the enslavement and the world of the slave master. We have the world of the oppressed and the oppressor. The world of the hypocrisy of Western powers with their media versus the justice the witnessing and the resistance of the global world. Make no mistake about it. The United States calls itself a superpower, but it's a Teflon power in front of the global power of people. We have a global power of people for justice, witnessing justice, making a difference for justice, and the days and time of colonization is over. 
If you have not gotten the memo, Algeria send you the memo. Vietnam send you the memo. Cambodia send you the memo. Bolivia send you the memo. El Salvador send you the memo. Zimbabwe send you the memo. And if you can't read in your own language, we're happy to translate it for you. It's a dying world. Colonization is a dying world. Colonization is a dying world. Colonization is a dying world. We are here today, and those in the streets of Namibia, Bolivia, Colombia, Yemen, DC, and London yesterday, we are clear and saying clear unmistakable words. Free Palestine! Free Palestine! Free Palestine! Free Palestine! Your bombs are, gonna are not going to stop a free Palestine. Your veto in, this, in the UN will not free, stop free Palestine. All the political machination will not, free, free pal will not stop a free Palestine. All your discussion with the Arab elites are not going to stop free Palestine. Free Palestine is a state of mind. It cannot be destroyed. It cannot be quenched. It cannot be ethnically cleansed. It cannot be changed. It cannot be changed. Free Palestine will be the reality. Now I want to conclude with the following. All Palestinians, Arab and Muslims, are feeling the trauma, the pain, broken hearts and souls with the loss of 1% of the population of Gaza. It's about 100,000 murdered, injured, and still missing under the rubble by Israel and US military machine. But don't mistake our cries, our trauma, our pain for the lack of resolve. We will not stop until and unless Palestine is free. We will not stop, nor silent, nor end our mobilization until Palestine free. There is no going back. We're going forward to free Palestine. If it's not today, it's tomorrow, the day after. And we tell Genocide Joe, we will not, we will not forget in November. Genocide Joe, we will not forget in November. Either you are with the oppressed, or you actually will be written in the dustbin of history as being part of the oppressor. Free Palestine, free Palestine, free Palestine. Freedom, freedom, freedom is what the Palestinians are calling for. And don't let anyone or anything or any type of delusion get you not to think about the need to free Palestine. Assalamu alaikum. is a professor of psychiatry. He has worked in Gaza for over 25 years and is a proud Palestinian. Give it up. San Francisco! We need to hear you from San Francisco to Gaza. Make some noise! San Francisco to Jerusalem. Make some noise! Palestine, make some noise! I'm here 
with these amazing brothers, sisters, peers, colleagues, and siblings from the Healthcare Workers for Palestine here in the Bay and throughout the world. We are in solidarity with our brothers and sisters back in Palestine and especially in Gaza. We are mourning the 23,000 martyrs who were murdered by the Israeli military with U.S. weapons, U.S. bombs, and U.S. technology made here in the Bay Area. That's right. The technology used in these bombs to kill Palestinians is made here in the Bay. 10,000 children have been killed in Gaza. NICU babies had the power pulled from their incubators and they died. We're standing in deep solidarity with the 2.3 million people in Gaza who are being starved to death as we speak now and the billions of people around the world who are globally standing up against the genocide in Gaza. The genocide and the crimes against humanity that the Israelis and the U.S. government are committing in Palestine will never be forgotten. We will struggle every day of our lives until Palestine is free. Israel and the United States and its surrogates will be held accountable for the crimes against humanity at the ICJ, at the ICC, and for moral people all over the world. But listen, y'all, this is really important what I'm going to talk about. Every Palestinian is a hero, right? But there's one group of Palestinians that we have to speak about today. And that's the courageous doctors, nurses, and healthcare workers. They stood defiantly. They stood steadfastly. They stood bravely against the bombs, the bullets, the courageous healthcare workers who refused to leave their patients. They refused to leave their clinics. They refused to leave their hospitals at Al-Shifa and Al-Ahli Hospital and the 30 hospitals in Gaza that have been bombed. They stayed courageous. These healthcare workers, these doctors, these nurses, they stayed courageous, refusing to leave their post. They stood proudly in defiance. They said something very loudly to the world. We will remain. We will remain. And they stayed and they were killed, they were injured, they were kidnapped, they were tortured. These doctors, these nurses, these healthcare workers are the real heroes in Gaza now. And while healthcare workers in Gaza were facing the ugly reality of having their clinics and their hospitals bombed, what do we see here in the United States? We see cowardice, 
we see collusion with doctors, with healthcare facilities, with organized medicine who have stood complicit with the Israeli genocide in Gaza. Shame. Listen, listen. There's no issue here. There's never an excuse to bomb a hospital, to kill a patient, or to kill a healthcare worker, full stop. Our leadership in organized medicine has stayed silent, and that silence is complicity. We will hold them accountable. We will hold them accountable to the genocide that's occurring in Gaza right now. We will hold them accountable. So let me say, to my brothers and sisters here, to my siblings, to my peers and my colleagues who are healthcare workers, who are facing racist attacks in their hospitals, in their clinics. Why? Because they're standing up for Palestine. Because they're saying no to genocide. Because they're saying no to bombing hospitals. So one more time, a big shout out for my peers, my colleagues, my, my healthcare worker siblings right here. We are gonna fight every single day. We are gonna fight every single day until every Palestinian is free. Now raise your fist if you believe in a free Palestine. Raise your fist if you believe in a free Palestine. Will you walk with me to a free Palestine? Thank you, free Palestine. All right, this is uh, Free Will and Franklin, KPFA uh, Full Circle and First Voice Media. I'm here with Dr. Jess Gannam. Tell us all about your experience and how long you worked in Gaza and um, you know what it was like there when you were there. Well, uh, the reason that's such a good question is that you know I've been working in Gaza for 25 years and people like to think that all these terrible things happened after October 7th. But the reality is things were very grim and very bad in Gaza prior to October 7th. In fact, prior to October 7th for 16 years, Gaza was under a total siege in that no one, no Palestinian in Gaza could come or could leave without the total control or the approval of the Israeli government. So essentially, Gaza became an open-air prison for 2.3 million people for the last 16 years. Uh, there were, there were, there were, you know, it was difficulty getting health care, supplies, food, water, and medicine. Even in prior to October 7th, 80% of Palestinian children were still living below the poverty line. So things were grim before October 7th, and now since October 7th, they've become the most grim situation on the, on the, on, in the planet right now, where Palestinians in Gaza are barely getting one meal a day. So um, things are horrific now, but they were really terrible before October 7th. And then as a doctor, tell us about what you have understood that doctors are now facing 
and what's happening to the Palestinian people when the blockade includes medicine, uh, medical supplies, anesthesia, all the stuff we've been hearing about women having to give uh, birth C-section, no anesthesia, children having to have amputations with no anesthesia. Talk about um, what you've heard and how you understand it. Well, I, I could tell you that there's not a single functioning hospital or a single functioning clinic anywhere in Gaza right now. So you essentially have 2.3 million Palestinians without any access to medical care or access to just even basic medications that people would take just every day, like for diabetes, for high blood pressure, for, for just like basic chronic conditions are not even available right now. There are 50,000 Palestinian women who are pregnant who are supposed to give birth within the next three to six months who are going to give birth and not have access to prenatal or postnatal care, let alone access to a midwife or OBGYN services. So it's very grim right now. Um, basically, people are operating without anesthesia. That's pretty common. But even, even if people can believe it, operating without anesthesia, but not without any antiseptics either. So the situation is unlike anything we've seen in the modern era. Um, one thing that's that's happening right now, because we're in the middle of flu, cold, and COVID right now, globally, no vaccines are getting into Gaza right now. So you have an entire population in Gaza that's being exposed to these viruses, multiple viruses, without any vaccines or vaccinations whatsoever. So there's going to be a pandemic in Gaza with lots of different conditions right now. And some people are suggesting that more people may die from the lack of medical care than from the people that have been killed from the, from the bombing that has occurred so far. So it's a very bad situation. And you spoke about uh, the doctors of Gaza and Palestine being the heroes and the importance of healthcare workers. Um, t tell us again, you know, here, um, why it's so important to support them and also the unprecedented amounts of healthcare workers that have been taken out literally by the um, Israeli forces. Well, this is, a, this is not getting enough attention in the media right now, which is very disturbing, but f over 500 healthcare workers have been killed. That's doctors, nurses, support staff have been killed. Hundreds have been taken uh, prisoner, have been tortured, have been taken out of the, even the possibility of practicing medicine right now. So uh, they have been incredibly courageous. We have doctors, I know of doctors, colleagues of mine, who are working at hospitals, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten days in a row without any sleep, without going home. And even while they were working at the hospital, their own family members, their own children were coming in being injured. And they had to see family members and children themselves come in and actually die in the hospital on their own shifts. They didn't even have the opportunity to mourn the death of their own children or their own family members. They kept at the hospital. These are the real heroes in the healthcare sector. These are the real heroes uh, in medicine right now. Not the people in the United States like organized medicine right now who can't even come to the point of saying don't bomb a hospital. They can't even say that. They can't even say cease fire. So the, that kind of complicity with genocide needs to be needs to be called out because it really goes against our Hippocratic oath. It goes against just common understanding of what it means as a doctor to do the right thing. That's pretty much my next question. Talk about the importance of healthcare workers speaking out, you know, such as yourself and your colleagues here today. 
Well, we are very fortunate that we have this great organization called Healthcare Workers for Palestine. Healthcare workers are now in deep solidarity with people in Palestine, and the reason for that is because they see clinics are getting attacked, hospitals are getting bombed, doctors are being killed. So people are saying, wow, we never knew this was going on in Palestine. So this is a wake-up call to doctors and healthcare workers globally to stand in solidarity with Palestine because the healthcare system is being utterly destroyed. Not, in, not just in Gaza, by the way, but also in the West Bank. So this is a time for all healthcare workers to stand up. Thank you, Dr. Gannon. We appreciate it. Okay, thank you. All right, welcome back. You're listening to Full Circle right here on 94.1 FM KPFA and kpfa.org. We are part of the Pacifica Radio Network, and we are also on First Voice Media on Facebook. You just heard some voices that were recorded at the West Coast March on Washington that was held in the San Francisco Civic Center. Just a reminder, there are videos and much more content on that First Voice Media Facebook page. Head over to First Voice Media on Facebook and follow that page and check out all the videos that we've posted there. And you'll also find links to our weekly show that we post there as well. Up next, I'm going to throw it over to J.R. Valray of the Block Report Radio, who recently spoke to Alameda County District Attorney Pamela Price Uh, In this interview, they talk about human trafficking and police terrorism in the county. Also, the law enforcement history of the Celeste Guap case in Oakland and the campaign to recall her. Let me throw it over to JR and Block Report. You are listening to another edition of the Block Report with the People's Minister of Information, JR. Today, our honored guest is the District Attorney of Alameda County, Ms. Pamela Price. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for definitely coming on, and thank you for what you've been able to accomplish in Alameda County. Ms. Price, I know that you were a lawyer in the historic Celeste Guap case. I believe it was around 2016, 2017. If I'm wrong, please correct me. But can you talk a little bit about the case of Celeste Guap, what happened in the case of Celeste Guap, And do you think that law enforcement in the Bay Area is capable of enforcing anti-human trafficking in Alameda County? Yes, I was involved in that case. It was about 10 years ago that I and another uh, group of women activists, primarily black women, members of the Black Women Organized for Political Action, Richmond chapter, we took on this issue around this young woman being exploited and trafficked, and we were really offended by the way that the media kind of demonized her and made her out to be the problem, and people seemed to be ignoring the fact that she was a minor, that she was a very vulnerable young woman, and so we really felt it was responsive, our responsibility as black women to change the narrative around the case as well as to make sure that someone was holding law enforcement, that our community was holding law enforcement accountable for what appeared to be a terrible abuse of authority. It turned out that it was um, outrageous abuse of authority that implicated multiple law enforcement agencies. I believe there were nine agencies that actually had 
people or individuals and some groups of individuals that were involved in exploiting this young woman. And it represented a danger to all young women who are intimidated by law enforcement and vulnerable and will not did not have the opportunity to really report that kind of misconduct. So we took that issue on, and as a result of my activism around that, I was contacted by the family and asked to be involved in representing her. And, and at the point that I got involved, she had literally been kidnapped by law enforcement and some members of law enforcement and shipped off to Florida. And we learned that she was incarcerated there facing felony charges on uh, pretty, really outrageous, illegal grounds. And so I joined the legal team that went to Florida and got her out of jail there. We were able to negotiate with the prosecutors there. We hired a lawyer. We engaged with folks in Florida and brought her back safely because there were a lot of death threats against her. And, you know, we obviously knew we were dealing with law enforcement. There had been one officer who had killed himself. So we knew that this was a very tenuous situation where violence had already taken the life of one person. And so we brought her back and were able to provide security for her and to allow her to be able to participate in the prosecution that started in Alameda County. I don't think it went anywhere in Contra Costa County or any of the other counties. Alameda, I believe, was the only county that actually tried to prosecute the officers, and they it was an unsuccessful effort. So it was a real tragedy for our community. It should have been a wake-up call for all of us that, you know, people, particularly young people, are exceptionally vulnerable not only to sexual exploitation but to the abuse of authority. And so certainly to answer your other question, there's no question that there are people in law enforcement who can and sometimes do abuse their authority. It doesn't mean all law enforcement by any means, but it really requires the leadership in every department to make sure that it is not happening within the department. And what time period are we talking? This started, I believe we learned that she had been trafficked starting at age 12. And so that would have been in the early 2010, really probably 2010. I represented her in 2016, I believe. And I think the final cases would, I don't recall exactly when those cases were ultimately dismissed or thrown out. So now that you're a district attorney and not just a lawyer representing a client, what makes you feel that law enforcement, particularly in Alameda County, but in general, is capable of covering or is capable of protecting people against human trafficking when you saw the results of what happened with the case that you tried not too many years ago, less than a decade ago? Let me say this. The role of the district attorney is broader than the role of a civil rights attorney. And I, I need to be clear, the Celeste Guap case was certainly not the first case that I litigated involving the exploitation or sexual assault of young women where, you know, we had questions about what law enforcement's 
role was in it. It it was not the first time, and it was not the first time that I had to challenge Alameda County District Attorney's Office on behalf of young women who had been sexually abused. So I have a long history and understanding about that, and I bring that lens as to my role as a district attorney. As a district attorney, as I have the duty to collaborate with law enforcement, and I have a very collegial relationship at this stage with all of our law enforcement partners because it is important to public safety that we not only hold law enforcement accountable, but that we also recognize that every law enforcement agency is different. Every officer is different. We would like to see a basic minimum standard of constitutional policing that applies across not just the local law enforcement, but across the country. And I think that's something that we're all striving for. And so we have on this issue of human trafficking, we work closely with investigators at Oakland Police Department, as well as the FBI, as well as other law enforcement agencies the national agencies as well to try to get underneath this billion-dollar business. The police are not the problem when you're talking about human trafficking. It's the profiteers who are moving not only human beings but also guns and drugs. But how can you say that when the people that are supposed to be protecting people, law enforcement, is the people that are committing suicide because of alleged guilt in the situation. Do you not think that if we have a corrupt law enforcement when it we're dealing with human trafficking and uh, dozens of members of law enforcement were involved in this case, according to mainstream media, I think the number that they listed was 30. And no one got convicted, although someone someone murdered themselves over it. I mean, you don't think that that speaks to a systemic problem and not just the problem of a few bad apples? I do think that there are systemic problems in law enforcement that are reflective of the systemic problems in the country. We have a rape culture. We have a gun culture. We live in times where women are objectified and over-sexualized, particularly young women and particularly women of ethnic backgrounds, black women, Asian women. That is not something that is limited to law enforcement. We have systemic racism and systemic sexism in the entire country. And I think that we have to address it, not focusing on one individual group in the in the system, because law enforcement is just one actor in the criminal justice system. I have to deal with the courts. I have to deal with my prosecutors and prosecutors around the country. I've been confronted by other prosecutors that challenge me primarily because I'm a black woman. They don't acknowledge that I have earned the right to sit in this seat and make policy. And so that effort effort to uh, tackle human trafficking across the board is a broader effort than just focusing on on you know, those particular law enforcement that something that happened 10 years ago. Well, I just want to applaud you on the work that you have been doing on behalf of the people. I am a lifetime resident of Alameda County. And one of the things that raised my eyebrows when you were elected was the fact that you took up for the people in cases of 
law enforcement misconduct. And we saw that you have been in power for about a year now, but yet, although before you had a year in power, there was a recall effort put out to go against what the Alameda County voters selected, which was Pamela Price to be the district attorney. What do you think about the recall effort and what are your views about what's going on right now in regards to the recall effort? We know that this effort to overturn the election, as you have appropriately described it, is a political effort. It's a political movement. It's not a grassroots movement. It is people who were invested in the status quo who lost in November of 2022 when Alameda County took a huge step forward. We were still moving boxes into the office, and I was in the midst of making the transition from candidate to district attorney when they started the recall. So it it started almost immediately within 30 days of me being sworn in. I think the the date on the first change.org petition is February 11th, and that speaks to the fact that once the people who were invested in the status quo and the broken criminal justice system realized that there had been a transfer of power, a taking of power from those that had maintained that power literally for 100 years, then they began organizing. This is part of a national movement to over and a national strategy by conservatives who are targeting progressive district attorneys across the country. It's real estate investors from outside Alameda County, the major investor or funder of the current effort in Alameda County is he owns the most real estate in downtown Oakland. So these are real estate investors, super rich folks that don't recognize or respect the will of the voters. In Alameda County, though, it is virtually impossible for them to do what they're trying to do because we have a charter. Alameda County is what we call a charter county. And under state law, if you try to recall a political person, you have to follow the charter of our county. And our charter, which was set up almost 100 years ago, maybe about 50 years ago, when Earl Warren was still the district attorney, he helped write the charter, so it's closer to 100 years ago. We have four things in the charter that make it virtually impossible for them to be successful. One is that anyone gathering signatures in Alameda County for a recall petition must be a registered voter in Alameda County. And so the folks, the national movement, when they do recalls in California and nationally, it's common to hire paid canvassers or paid signature gatherers and bring them in from all over the country. And we know that happened in Alameda County. They brought people from Michigan and other parts of California. They hired people who do not live here to get these signatures. And that's a violation of the charter, which means that the majority of their signatures are not valid signatures. The second challenge that they face is that the charter requires the registrar of voters to count the votes within 10 days, to count the signatures, and given the number of signatures, the registrar is physically, just logistically unable to do that. The third challenge, even if the registrar were to somehow manage to count these signatures, is that the Board of Supervisors is then required 
to hold the election within 35 to 40 days. And what that means is that people who live overseas or are military residents would not be able to vote because they would not have enough time to get the ballot and then mail it back. Also, because we are an incredibly diverse county, we have over 40 languages spoken in Alameda County, and our ballot have to go to all those folks, the registrar would not have enough time to translate, print, and distribute the ballots and get them back to complete this election within 35 or 40 days. The fourth challenge is that if, in fact, the recall were to get on the ballot, the charter requires that anyone who is running to replace me, my replacement, would have to also be on the ballot. And so someone, or I guess several people, would have to figure out how to run a countywide campaign and persuade the voters with less than 40 days on why they should be elected as a district attorney or that they could do this job better than I can. And I think that that those things make it virtually impossible for us to have a recall in 2024. It sounds like no matter what people's politics are, it sounds like a huge waste of money and a huge affront to what the voters want. It's a huge waste of money, and it is an undemocratic way. And, and to that point, the people who are locally, who are participating in this, are very clear that they did not vote for me and they did not support me and they're just upset because the person they wanted to win lost and the voters elected me and now they want to have another opportunity a second bite at the apple to see if they can have a different candidate or a different person so that's undemocratic once you have an election people died for the right for us to vote and people should respect what the voters say The other piece of it is, yes, the people who are doing this recall campaign have already spent a million dollars, and they're committed to spend four to five million dollars. If you're going to spend that kind of money, help us house our unhoused people. Help us get some mental health services. We need mental health clinicians in every agency and community-based organization, the city of Oakland. Everyone, we're starving for mental health services for our family members. Help us get that. Help us fund our schools and pay our teachers. That's what we need. We don't need to waste $5 million on a recount of the first election. For those that are just tuning in, you are listening to the voice of Alameda County District Attorney, Ms. Pamela Price. Ms. Pamela Price, there was a document that came out in the media that was discovered by the people that were against the recall, the campaign that's that was against the recall. Can you talk a little bit about what was inside of this document that people found? Yeah, the campaign against the recall is called Protect the Win because we are committed and my supporters are committed to protecting the win of the Alameda County voters. We took a huge step forward in 2022. The voters want police accountability. They want a criminal justice system that treats everyone fairly. We have to address the racial disparities that have infected the criminal justice system. And that is the way forward for Alameda County. So we are trying to protect the win and protect our progress and protect our right to vote and ultimately protect our democracy.
And so the document that you're referencing shows that the people who are funding this effort to overturn the election, they don't care about public safety and they don't care about the democracy. What they care about are their property values. So the recall organization is very well structured. They have a separate fundraising arm. They have a separate political arm and they're paying professional political people to run a primarily a media campaign and that's how they expect to spend the money is on the media and that's what it showed as well that they had a timeline that was completely unrealistic but the most important part was that they were willing to raise money they were going to raise money from around the country focusing on real estate investors and developers and that who is is the people that are actually going to fund this thing And then also with respect to timing, they recognize that the way that they want to have this happen will cost the residents of Alameda County 15 to $20 million, and they're perfectly okay with that. And again, if our county has 15 to $20 million extra sitting around, we need to put that on mental health services. We need to have more community-based facilities for people who are severely mentally ill. We need to have better education services and better services for young people. We should be intervening in ways that protect public safety and not throwing away $20 million so that the people who lost the election can have another bite at the apple. There's an economic recession that is taking grip in the Bay Area and also around other places around the country, we see on social media there's a concentration on crime in Oakland, and it's being blamed as causing an economic collapse in Oakland and also in San Francisco, but I know that's outside of your district. But in my opinion, there's not enough that is being focused on the overall economy. There's a lot of interest in crime. Do you feel that crime is being used as an excuse for the major economic problems that the United States is having? And when I say crime, I'm using that as a euphemism for black and brown young people in particular, they are basically being blamed for businesses closing and to some smaller extent that may be contributing to it, but there's an economic depression. How do you see it as the district attorney? Certainly, it has long been said, and and I don't know if it was Malcolm X, but certainly one of our great historical leaders with respect to the liberation of black people, always taught us that, you know, when white society catches a cold, the black community gets the flu. And we are still coming out of COVID. And we know that black people were disproportionately impacted. Black and Latino and Asian people actually were disproportionately impacted by the COVID virus. And it decimated economies, not just in this country, but worldwide economies. And so it will take us some years to get out of it. At one count, they said 20, over 20 million people in America were unemployed 
due to the COVID-19 outbreak and the subsequent economic downturn. We are still dealing with the residue of that, and it's going to take time for us to get through that. At the same time, when you see a rise in crime that can be driven by a number of issues, economic deprivation is certainly one, mental health is another, and, you know, it's when you are poor and struggling, it is hard to get services for mental health. And let's be clear, when we went through a worldwide pandemic, everybody had anxiety. We did not expect and we were not prepared to be in lockdown for almost a year. It impacted our children. It impacted our elders. It impacted everyone in ways that we still have not reconciled. And there's a shortage of mental health services and clinicians that would have given us, you know, we don't have the kind of social net that to catch us when we all kind of went over that COVID cliff. All right. And so we're still coming back from that. And as you see a rise in crime and different manifestations of it around the country, we have to be able to look below sort of the headlines because the headlines don't really tell us what is really happening. But we do know that people are using crime as a political weapon. They always have. And fear as a way of destabilizing communities. And so we have to push back at that. I was able to participate a couple of weeks ago in a unity ceremony where we brought together representatives from the African-American faith community and representatives from the Asian community and the Asian faith community. And we all came together, not as politicians, but as people, to talk about how do we heal our community. And that is what we all need to be focusing on and rejecting the politics of hate and divisiveness that is, you know, manipulating our fears and our anxieties and our concerns about crime. And let me be clear, crime is a problem anytime. I want people to understand that anytime someone is a victim of crime, that's not okay. It is not okay for hurt people to hurt people. Okay, and at the district attorney's office, we are doing everything that we can on a daily basis to protect public safety, to hold people accountable. There is no free pass in Alameda County to come and shoot somebody or rob somebody or carjack somebody. We are not having it. Just like we are fighting human trafficking, we are holding people accountable for basic crimes because that is not fair to the community. It destabilizes the community. And we have to fight back on that. And we are holding the line for our part. But it's not a one organization or a one type strategy. We all have to be part of the community that looks at how do we recover from the impacts of COVID, not just for some, but for all. You were just listening to the voice of Alameda County District Attorney, Mrs. Pamela Price, right here on the Block Report with the People's Minister of Information, J.R. Valray. Ms. Pamela Price, thank you for coming on and thank you for sharing your words and insight as to what's happening around us in Alameda County. Thank you for having me. Take care.
All right. Again, thank you, JR, for that great interview. To hear more from JR and Black Report Radio, follow him on social media and Black Report Radio. We will post links to JR's work on our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show tonight. And before we run out of time, I want to let you all know about some work of First Voice graduate apprentice Sarah LaFleur Vetter. She is inviting you to an exciting upcoming event for people here in the Bay Area. And that's Saturday, February 3rd at 2 p.m. at the Richmond Museum of History and Culture. And this event will shed new light on local icon Betty Reed Soskin. This free event will showcase an exciting forthcoming documentary, Sign My Name to Freedom, which is a feature-length film about 102-year-old Betty Reed Soskin, her lost music, and her family's experiences confronting Jim Crow-style segregation in the Bay Area. Again, that's Saturday, February 3rd at 2 p.m. at the Richmond Museum of History and Culture, and we will post a link on our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show tonight. We're also looking forward to bringing this story back to Full Circle next week um, with an interview, so stay tuned for that next week. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Remember to check out our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show for pictures, archive shows, and important links and information related to tonight's show. Also, again, please check out and follow and like First Voice Media on Facebook, where we post our videos and other material that doesn't always make it here to the radio waves. Um, a shout out to the Full Circle crew. That's Miss M, the executive director, and me, Freewell and Franklin. I have been your host tonight, and I'm also the technical director for this show, Full Circle. Thanks for listening, everyone. And remember, while you're out there, to please protect your health and also your humanity. And stay tuned to KPFA. Up next is La Onda Bajita. Good night, everyone. <laughs>